Me, uh, George, are you ready to take finding the rock out? Have you guys thought about trying this room right back here? You doing it tonight? You're not. I, I'm too noisy. Really? Okay. I'm too noisy. I, all right, take them. All right, God bless finding the rock. Give them a hand as they go. Here they go. Amen. God bless all of you. And uh, how many of you have been going through Philippians with me? You've been reading ahead? How many of you have been reading ahead? All right. Most have not. Let me encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to read ahead. Now, tonight, we're going to be covering, uh, we're going to finish chapter 2, and we're going to go the first 11 verses of chapter 3. So if you want to read the last half of starting at verse 12 through 21 next week, do it. And let me do, encourage you to do something. Never read that Bible without a pen. If your Bible's too holy to mark in, I'll give you one that's not. Okay? Always read it with a pen and I want, or a marker. And I want you to learn to, when something jumps at you, when something moves you, when something talks to you, underline it, make a note next to it, and date it. I've got d dates in this Bible. They go... Uh, 07, 06, 05, 04, 03. I mean, it's full, filled with verses, passages that spoke to me. And I like, because what you'll want to do is go back to it someday and say, ah, on that date, that spoke this to me. Look what has happened since then. And make your Bible a journal. Okay? Don't skim read it. Learn to let words talk to you. And phrases talk to you and if you have a, a favorite verse and it speaks to you learn to mark it put it in yellow put it in orange put it in green underline it circle it what it says to you write it down amen because your bible needs to come alive to you and, and you need to be reading it all the time you need to be re reading it consistently uh, even if you're spending five minutes a day in it start with five minutes a day and there's a lot I could say about, uh, you know, when all else fails, uh, just read a psalm or read a proverb. But go to the Bible and, um, and just begin to read. If you, you find that if you mark something in it, if you date it, if you circle it, underline it, then it has a way of becoming more meaningful to you. And you're making a historical mark in it. Your Bible ought to be, <clears throat> listen, he whose Bible is worn out probably isn't. Okay? Some of you pray about that and get it tomorrow. But let's stand up together. And, and I want to, I wanna, we're going to go through Philippians now. I'm going to finish chapter 2. I love this book. I can't tell you how much I love the book of Philippians. It's the joyful letter. It's not the depressed letter. It's not the struggling letter. It's the joyful letter. And how many of you need a greater anointing of joy? How many of you have some joy? Let me see. I, Oh, good. Amen. That's one of the signs of a healthy church, if the people have joy. Some churches you can walk in and ice skate to your seat, and that's not good. You, you need to come in and have joy. We need to be sharing with each other. And, all right? So we're looking at the joyful letter, character sketches tonight. Now, um, let's just pray together. And then I'm, I, I started out saying something here without a verse. So I want us to pray a prayer that God will speak to us. 
I want this to become a part of your soul, part of your spirit. Lord, we just thank you for the Word of God that lives, pulsates with life. Even your Son, Lord, said your words were spirit and life. Lord, we pray that you will build our faith, increase our faith, increase our joy level. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us out of the Scriptures. Now, will you just place your hand over your heart and say, Lord, I open my heart to you tonight. Speak to me. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, joy is on the way. And you can be seated. Amen. All right, we saw last time that God imparts to every believer his spirit. If you're a believer, the spirit of the Lord is living inside of you. If you're not a believer, the spirit of the Lord is not living inside of you. Isn't that a PC statement? If, if you're a believer, you've been born again and you're God's child. If you're not a believer in Christ and haven't put your faith in Him, you're not God's child. You have been created by God, but you've yet to become God's child. Become born again and you're God's child. Uh, until then, Jesus said you're of your father, the devil. Now, isn't that a strong word? But... How many of you can say, well, I know this, that before I knew Christ, I was doing the works of the devil. All right? A great message would be, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? All right. So God puts his spirit in every one of his children. But now look what happens when that spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you. He energizes you. All right? Energeo. We talked about that last week. It's the Greek word for energy. He energizes the believer with two things, a desire to do his will and the ability to do his will. All right? That's what God gives you. How many of you can testify to this fact? Since you were saved, you've got a new set of motivations, a new set of desires, and one of them is to please God. Can you say that? And if somebody says to me, I don't have that, Pastor, then, I, then I'm going to tell you, you're, you're not saved. You're not saved. With salvation comes a holy desire to do the will of God, to please God. And then along with that, God gives you the power to follow through with those desires. Very important. Oh, I forgot my little gizmo here. There we go. All right. Now, as we journey along in our life with Christ, new desires, new power to do those desires, Paul encourages us not to muddy the waters along the way. Don't muddy the waters along the way. I learned a long time ago, never try to catch a crawdad in muddy water. You say, well, what do you mean by that? When I was a kid, I loved creeks. I loved, I was a critter kid. My mother used to be afraid to open up my lunchbox when I got home because I always had some new creature in it that I caught on the way home. Snakes, lizards, toads, frogs, you name it. I learned that when you muddy the water getting into that creek, that is the worst time to reach your hand down there and try to grab a crawdad. Here's the moral of the story. Never make major decisions when the water is muddy. Don't do it. If you'll sit there for a while and wait on God, the water will clear. Then you can see, because if you reach down there when the water is muddy, you're going to get pinched bad. 
And I came out of that water with the crowd out holding me rather than me holding him about two times, and that's all it took. And here's the deal. Paul says, don't muddy the waters along the way because every day we need clarity. We need clarity in our walk with God. We need the water to be clear. Now, he names a couple of things that muddy the water like nothing else. And here's the first one. It's in verse 14 of chapter 2. Do all things without what? Say it with me. Complaining and disputing. You mean Christians complain and Christians dispute? Well, how many of you can say, I've complained at least once since I got saved? All right. Just want to know if I'm talking to human beings. All right. Now watch this. Complaining is from a word meaning to murmur. To murmur. And 1 Corinthians 10.10 tells us that murmuring brought brought ruin to the lives of God's people. Now, I'm going to tell you something tonight, church. Murmuring, complaining will muddy the water spiritually in your life where you can't make major decisions effectively. Murmuring will muddy the water. Complaining. The cup's either half full or half empty. And there are are folks, listen, there's born again and born against people. Born again people are hallelujah, upbeat, I'm for, you know, let's go, let's go get them, let's win the world. Born against people are against anything you ever try to do for God. I want to be a born again person, not a born against person. But there are people born against. Everything that happens around them, they're against it. They complain about everything. They've never learned to praise God, never learned to thank God, never learned to be grateful. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've never, never, ever in my whole lifetime known a happy complainer. Never. And I've never known a depressed, positive person. Not ever. Now, he's, he's, look what happened to the people there that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. He's talking about children of Israel going through the, the wilderness. And here's what he says about them. He says, now don't do what they did. Here's what they did. They discontentedly complained, murmured, and look what happened to them. They were put out of the way entirely by the destroyer, by complaining. Now, who would ever think that complaining can open the door to the destroyer in your life? But I'm going to tell you, that's what he's telling us right here. He's telling us that complaining opens the door to the destroyer. And the destroyer is the devil. And he's saying, if you want to keep... Now, now I believe that the tongue is one of the gatekeepers of the soul. The eyes are gatekeepers. The ears are gatekeepers. The tongue is a gatekeeper. And you protect your soul by what you look at or don't look at, by what you hear or don't hear, and by what you say or or don't say. And these people... You, you, couldn't, you couldn't get them to praise God. You can read about them. Man, nothing was good enough. They got supernatural food on the ground every single morning. God is making water gush out of rocks so they can have something to drink. They've got a cloud following them by day, a fire following them by night. They've got a leader whose face glows in the dark. And yet all they can do is complain and murmur. We miss Egypt. We wish we had the leeks and the garlic and the melons from Egypt. We miss baloney. They didn't miss Egypt. Egypt was hell for them. They begged God to get them out of Egypt. But once they got in the wilderness, all they could do was complain. And they complained and they complained. And you know what finally happened? 
They said, we want quail. We're sick of this manna. We want quail. God said, you want quail? I'll give you quail. And quail began to drop on them out of the sky. But the Bible says it no sooner was between their teeth than they began to drop dead. Bad quail. And what did that? The Bible says he gave them the request of their lips and their lips were complaining, but he sent leanness to their soul. Now, there is nothing worse than a lean soul because your joy, your peace, your strength, your worldview, your outlook, all of those things are formed out of the strength or the weakness of your soul. And they had a lean soul. And you know what made their soul lean? Endlessly complaining. Everybody say, complaining is not worth it. I like what somebody once said. They said, the only difference between a rut and a grave is timing. And you know what somebody, a complainer, they're living in a rut. They get up in a rut, they go to bed in a rut. They walk through the day in a rut. Now you and I have a choice. We can in everything give thanks for this is God's will in Christ Jesus for us. Or we can be just like the world and complain about everything under the sun. Let me just prophesy something to you. If you're a complainer, you're digging yourself your own grave and your tongue is the shovel. And you're going to end up being in a rut. You're not going to be a happy person. Now, I think I'm talking to people who want to be happy. I want to be happy. Hey, you live once and then you die. I don't want to live on this planet miserable. I am a fundamentally happy man. And if I start getting miserable, I'm going to find out why. And I'm not going to stay there. So murmuring, complaining, fault finding will put you in a rut faster than any single thing. How many of you know this is true? How many of you have ever been blessed to live with a complainer? Don't look at your spouse. Just look up at me and just say, but do you know what it's like to live with a complainer? Not only do they kill themselves, they kill everybody around them. Now the apostle of joy, Paul, was the antithesis of a complainer. He refused to allow himself to go there. And where was he when he wrote this letter? He was in prison for doing something right. But he refused to be taken down by a complaining tongue. Now, disputing means to involve yourself in useless debates. And this is another way we muddy up the water. Useless debates that lead to nothing but arguments. Look what he says, that you may become blameless and harmless. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Let me, let me deal with disputing just for a moment. There are two kinds of people, honest seekers and those who only want to argue. Now, if I find myself dealing with somebody who only wants to argue, I walk away. If I'm dealing with an honest seeker that's really wanting answers and they're perplexed about something, uh, say in the Bible, and they want a an honest answer and they have honest questions and they're not really trying to argue with me, but they're, they're sharing with me what's giving them a struggle, I'll, I'll, I'll hang with them all night. But if somebody just wants to argue for arguing's sake, they're proud about their intellect or proud about their verbal ability or they're really just looking for a, a good fight and they're not really looking for answers, don't fool with them. Walk away. Now he says that you may become blameless and harmless. Harmless is from a word meaning without the slightest catch or hook. Now what does that mean? Everybody say the word with me, harmless. 
Now I want you to preach to your neighbor and tell him you're supposed to be harmless. Did you know that? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean wimpy? Does that mean spineless? Does that mean not having an opinion? What does that mean? It means literally without a horn, like a steer that can gore you, okay? To the best of your ability, you are not to cause others to stumble. That's what it means by harmless. You're not to cause others to stumble. You know, there's a little saying that I've remembered for years, and I want to share it with you. It's, it goes like this, others may, but you cannot. And then the scripture verse that says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. You know, there are some things you can do, but you shouldn't. There are some things you can do, but you shouldn't. And maybe the reason you shouldn't is not for you, but it's for the person watching you. Okay? Uh, Others may, but you can't. Why can't you? Because you're a believer. And Christ has his spirit on you. And believe me, if it's gotten out that you're a believer and it should have gotten out, there's eyeballs looking at you that you don't know anything about. So there are some things you could do, but you shouldn't. It's called the weaker brother concept. Paul said, if, if what I'm doing causes my brother to stumble, then I won't do it as long as the world stands. All right? The weaker brother concept. So when it's talking about being harmless, it, and I just lost, there it went, it means that you, you can, but you shouldn't. You want to be harmless. Don't cause people around you to stumble. Don't let your liberty cause somebody else to be tripped up. Let me give you an example. I, I really feel, now th- this is just me, and I'm not trying to cast a, a net on anybody. I'm really not. This is me. But, you know, a, a, a lot of Christians drink. And, you know, if you drink, you drink. But let me just toss this your way. You know that in our church there are a lot of people fighting for their life against alcohol. And so they'll come to me and they say, well, what do you think about the drinking thing? I say, well, I can't say that the Bible says not to drink because it doesn't. It says don't be drunk. But it also talks about the weaker brother. And in most instances in the Bible, when it talks about drinking, uh, it's in a negative light most of the time. And say, well, the Bible says have a little wine for your stomach's sake. Is your stomach hurting you? Is that why you had the drink? See, back then they didn't have medicine, so they would have a little wine for us. Now, again, I'm not trying to cast a net of condemnation on you. I'm not. But if you were to ask me, Pastor, should I or shouldn't I, I would would say you're better off if you don't. You're just better off if you don't. Now, go on and do it, but my person... And I didn't mean to go into all of this, but I've got to give you an example about being harmless. So here's an example. Uh, I was on a jet one time, and I was uh, sitting uh, right behind first class. And there was a very well-known preacher in first class about four rows up from me. Of course, he didn't know that I was back there and knew who he was and was looking at him. And he 
ordered um, a straight shot of hard liquor, threw it back like it was distilled water. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to sit in judgment. He can do that if he wants to. But I thought, I thought, hmm. And then he got another one, threw back another one. I thought, hmm. Now, do I still listen to him? Yep. Did it make me stumble? No. But I'm not a weaker brother. Now, if I had been in his church and was an alcoholic and saw that, I'd have said, well, praise God. And I'd have called that stewardess over right then and there and said, yeah, whatever he had. Because if he can, I can. All I'm saying is people are always watching. So be harmless. You get it? Are, are you all with me? And I'm, I'm not ministering condemnation. I'm really not. I, I know lots of people who, who drink. And, and I'm not, it's, if you ask me, I say you're better off because I believe the minute you take a a sip, particularly a glass or two, your ability to reason and make good decisions begins to go down with it. And if you can handle that, that's fine. But if you can't, believe me, you don't have to do it. Moving right on with all this heavy amen and clapping and (laughs) that we'll have to edit out for the radio, let me just move on. But I, I love you. I just see, I see things like that do so much damage to people. That's why I say it. Now, he says without fault. It refers to being without a blemish, like a bodily sore. There's no open sore of sin in your life. That's what he's saying. I want you to be without fault. Crooked. He said, We're, I don't want you to be crooked. Now, crooked comes from the Greek word, scolios and guess what we get from scolios the greek word scoliosis or curvature of the spine and it means i don't want you to be bent unnaturally and it describes our generation spiritually bent are y'all aware that our country is has spiritual scoliosis i mean you talk about crooked you talk about bent twisted unnatural and he says, along with crooked, don't, don't be perverse. He says, actually means thoroughly bent. That's what perverse means. Thoroughly bent, like a bent wagon wheel that makes the entire wagon drive roughly and unbalanced. The Bible says that the generations of our world are thoroughly bent, twisted, and depraved. And guess what? When you, as a child of light, you begin to walk with God, and His light fills your soul, and you walk in righteousness, you're straight. You're not bent. And if you really walk with him, you begin to stand out. Because this generation, y'all, is bent. It's crooked. It's perverse. And it's growing worse. Are you aware of this with me? It's perverse. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. Up is down. Down is up. Black is white. White is black. It's upside down. It's perverse. It's bent like a bent spine that's unnatural when peter was preaching at pentecost he said save yourselves from this crooked bent generation 
among whom you what? Say it with me. Shine as lights in the world. Now, can I tell you, you're a light. You, you are a light. You've been lit. You say, well, I don't feel like a light. I don't care what you feel like. You're a light. You've been lit. You're a lamp. Now, if I've got a lantern and it's right here, am I going to bring it into this room that's already lit? No. I'm going to take it where it is dark. So that's why you are where you are in your world. Because God only gets you here, here to stoke the flame. Then we send you out to go where it is dark because you are a And everywhere you go, you shine. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. You're a light. You've been lit. I love this word lights. It's from a word meaning not only to shine, but to make things around you that are in the dark come to light, to make them appear, to reveal them. That's what light does. Listen to what Paul said. He said, it's, it's shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when what? Say it. The light shines on them. And where does the light come from? Say with me, that be me. See, God takes you a lantern, a light, and he places you where there is darkness. And that light makes manifest what is in the dark? That's why some people don't like you at all. Can I just tell you, it's not your deodorant, I hope. It's because you're a light. And they don't, they don't want the light. Jesus said this is the condemnation, that light came into the world and men love darkness more than light. So some people want, want the light, but there are others don't like it when light comes walking into the room. That's why when you walk in, it's like this. Because you have light. And people who love their sin, they don't want you in the room. They don't want you around them. It's just that simple. That's why if you're a Christian, you better not marry an unbeliever. Don't do it. What fellowship does what? Light have with darkness. Hey, honey, let's go worship the Lord. Worship who? I want to worship the Lord. But that's another topic altogether. But look what he says in Ephesians 5.13. The light makes everything visible. It says, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, Paul is saying, I hope, I hope, I pray. It's my prayer that I have not labored with you people in vain. The day of Christ is coming. And that is when believers' works will be judged. We will not be judged for sin, but we will be judged for our works. Paul is saying that he looks forward to the day of Christ when not only he, but all of those he nurtured in Jesus will receive their rewards. You're going to get a reward. His prayer is, Lord, don't let me have labored in vain. Please don't let me do that. Now, then he introduced us. Now, let's, let's uh, shift gears for a minute. How many of you can say with me, I don't want to have labored in vain? Say with me, the grace of God was not given to me in vain. So say with me, so I'm going to shine in the dark places. And I'm going to walk straight 
and cause no one to stumble to the glory of God. Give the Lord a hand of praise, can we? All right, now, now Paul is going to shift gears. We're, we're, we're moving into um, pretty close to chapter 3, or we're in chapter 3, actually. He introduces us to two characters. First, we have Timothy, the faithful servant. And I want you to notice who Paul admired, the character qualities that Paul admired. Because if Paul admired it, so did Jesus. Now, how many of you can say with me, character matters? Do you believe that's true? Does it matter? Does it matter in politicians? Does it matter in dads and moms? Does it matter in the brethren? Character matters. It matters big time to God. Now look what Paul says about Timothy, his son in the faith. If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you're getting along. I have no one else like-minded who genuinely, read this last part with me, genuinely cares about your welfare. Now we're in chapter 2, verse 20 here. I have nobody who genuinely cares about your welfare like Timothy. Now, does that strike you as a little cynical? How in the world can a man like Paul, who preached to thousands and thousands of people, how could he come off and say something like this? I don't have anybody who naturally cares for you. But Timothy, you would have thought he had a passel of people around him who naturally cared. Now I'm going to ask you a million dollar question. How often do you run across people who naturally care about you are they the exception or are they the rule they're the exception he says I don't have anybody like-minded or like me who naturally cares about you like-minded means like sold you could almost use the word soulmates in the best possible sense of the word here he said Timothy, my son in the faith, is really a soulmate of mine in this, in this respect. He's like me. He doesn't act like he likes you. He really does like you. He doesn't act like he cares. He really does care, naturally. He naturally cares. Is that what God wants to work in all of us? That we naturally care about people? The fruit of the Spirit is, first one, Love. That's the first fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Matter of fact, all the other fruits of the Spirit that follow after love are really derivatives of love. So, their souls were the same in their natural care about the welfare of others. Interestingly, there was no one else Paul knew who was this way. Now, I used to read the verse we're about to read, verse 21. I used to read it and think, wow, Paul had gotten jaded in his older days, in his older years. I thought, man, that, what a cynical statement to say, all seek their own, until I found out it's true. Look what he says, verse 21, Philippians chapter 2. All the others care only for themselves 
and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. Now I want to do something here tonight to illustrate this. Let's just say there's a cross standing right in front of me. Behind that cross is selfishness ruling your life. On the other side of the cross is love and genuine care for others ruling your life. I'm going to tell you, the only thing that will take you out of a life of selfishness, self-centeredness, narcissism, all those things that promote and exalt self is the cross. That's it. That's why Jesus talked about crucifying your self. Because until you encounter the cross, and I'm not talking about in salvation, because there are a lot of people saved who are as selfish as the day is long. They have not applied the cross to their self-life. And I want to contend with you, or I want to just, I want to make the case tonight that, that one of the works of the Holy Spirit from the minute you get saved, one of the struggles of the Holy Ghost in your soul is to get you to the place where you pick up that cross daily and follow him and you're a crucified person in that it's not all about you. We go from our Godhead being me, myself, and I to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What if Jesus had been selfish? We wouldn't be here. There wasn't an, uh, there wasn't an atomic particle of selfishness in the person of Jesus Christ. So here is Paul saying, the whole world is seeking its own. What an indictment on a fallen world. There's not an unselfish person out there unless they have met the cross. And you meet that cross, and he says, I want you to crucify yourself. We have been crucified with Christ, the Bible says. But every day you've got to pick up that cross. And how many times in any given day are you and I called upon to not be selfish? All the time. And you've got a choice to either be a selfish, narcissistic jerk. And I've been that a million times a million times. Or you can be like Jesus. And if you're going to be like Jesus unselfish, genuinely, naturally caring for other people, it's going to have to come by way of the cross. The Holy Ghost will crucify you if you'll let him. Amen, Pastor Jeff, I'm going to get this CD. I'm going to send it to 30 other people. Let me tell you something. If you, if you can just bring this into your marriage, you know why marriages fall apart is selfishness. For the most part, if you want to become like Jesus at warp speed, get married. Come on, isn't it true? Because you can't be selfish and be married for very long. Marriage is made up of two good forgivers. It's a fact, Jack. You, my wife, we love to watch two things, Forensic Files and Judge Judy. Now, she records Judge Judy religiously because she's able to live through Judge Judy. Because Judge Judy tells people where to get off. Kathy can't do that, but she lets Judge Judy do it for her. <laughs> that, that's what it is. It's, it is. 
And I hear her say amen all the time from the, the room where she's watching Judge Judy. And I hear Judge Judy screaming at somebody and telling them off. But one thing I have noticed, I've, I've ended up watching it more than I ever would have on my own because she watches it. And I see these people who are in there in court against each other. And it's always selfishness. Selfishness is the curse of the fall. So look what he says. Not, they care about themselves, not for what matters to Jesus Christ. Here's the sad fact of fallen man. He's selfish, self-centered, and out primarily for himself until the cross of Christ touches his life. Fallen man seeks his own ambitions, his own desires, his own fulfillment. That's why we're in a financial nightmare right now. Selfish, greedy, lying, deceitful men who right now have got their millions and are off somewhere enjoying it, not caring what they did to the entire world. Selfishness. He can't really care, the selfish person can't really care about others because he's so focused on himself. Timothy had been set free to serve others, and this had been a rare event in Paul's circle of acquaintances. Wow. So if you want to be like Jesus, there's going to be some pain involved. There will be a price. You'll have to crucify your selfish desires and learn to put others before you. And that goes against the grain of this world. Look what he says, but you know how Timothy has proved himself like a son with his father. He served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. Now I want to deal with the word prove before we close tonight. How many of you needed to hear this about selfishness? Because can you imagine the power of a church that is not walking in selfishness, but is walking in the love of Christ, that is putting others first? Listen, you get a church full of unselfish people, full of the Holy Ghost, with their old selfish selves crucified, and there is no end, no limit, no ceiling what that church can do. But here's another thing he said about Timothy's character. Not only is he not selfish, but he's been proven. Prove means prove by trial and experience. Here's what Timothy had done. He had stood the test of time and troubles, and he had proven himself trustworthy. How did Paul know he was trustworthy? Paul watched him in trials. Now, I'm going to tell you about people. You don't ever know people when they're on top. You don't ever know people when the money's good. You don't ever know people when all is well. You know people when the trials hit. The trials reveal the character underneath. They just do. Now, Paul had watched Timothy go through trials and troubles and time. And he said, he's proved now. He's proved. The content of our character is revealed in trials and with time. This is why God commands us in the church. Now, I want you to read this with me. Read it. Are you ready? Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Why? Because, boy, you better know those who labor among you. I can't tell you 
how often people come in and here's their attitude use me or lose me you have no idea what is sitting here looking at you pastor jeff i'm talented i'm gifted i'm capable i got it going on and if you're smart you'll spot me quick before i fly off to another nest you know what i say to them bye Oh, I just can't tell you how often it happens. I'm God's anointed and appointed. I'm an apostle. I'm a prophet. I'm every once in a while I'm an evangelist and a pastor and a teacher. I'm all five rolled up in one, sitting right out here waiting for you to spot me. Holy Ghost has blown me in. If you're not careful, he'll blow me out. <laughs> and I say, Holy Ghost, blow away. Because watch this. I'm not going to put somebody in leadership who I don't know. If I didn't care about you, I'd do it. But boy, they'll wreak havoc if they haven't been proved. They got to be proved. With time, and I want to watch them when they go through trials. So he says, don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. If I do appoint somebody in leadership who wasn't ready, their character wasn't ready, and they go and they hurt people, I share in that. That's what he means. Don't share in the sins of others. I share in that. I do. All right, quickly, uh, he commands Epaphroditus We'll just go through this last part. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. What would you call him for short? Hey, Paph. Epaphroditus is a true brother. Look what he says about him. He's a true brother, co-worker, and he's a fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to minister to me in my need. Now, notice again that Paul is holding forth somebody who has been proven. He says in front of brother, he says he's true. He's a true brother, true co-worker true soldier for Christ. Minister is used in another version, talking about Epaphroditus, and that means a public servant, a functionary in the temple, or he's a worshiper of God. Epaphroditus was a worshiper of God first and a servant of men second. And that's usually how it happens. I'm sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very distressed that you heard he was sick. Now, distressed Here's Epaphroditus. He's sick, almost dead. But he's concerned about what they're going through, knowing he's sick. I don't know about you. If I got the flu, I'm, not, I'm, I'm worried about me. But look what he says. In other words, he's unselfish, just like Timothy, truly caring about others. He almost died, yet he was worried about his ordeal, how his ordeal was going to burden others. And Paul said he was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. Let's stand together and we're going to look at these three things. I want you to read them with me. What kind of character God recognizes in the church? Can you say them with me? One, those with proven character resulting in trustworthiness. Two, unselfish character. Three, those who have a natural care for God's people.
And he says, those are the kind of people I want around me. How many of you want to be this way? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just come to you and we ask that the Holy Spirit will continue to work on the inside of us. We can't make ourselves this way, Lord, but we can abide in the vine and reap the fruit that flows through the vine. Help us, Lord, to be an unselfish church, naturally caring about each other. Help us, Lord, to not cause others to stumble as much as lies within us. And Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing in the body of Christ among us and among our radio friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing a song right before we...